0: Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we'll be reading verses 9 through 14. And looking at verses 9, 10, and 11, we'll get to verses 12, 13, and 14 on next week, Lord willing. Let's pray together before we read the passage. Our Heavenly Father, you've taught us in your Son what it is we're to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And also in these letters, we discover what we're to pray for. And so as we work through what it is we're called to pray for, and thus what it is we're supposed to be seeking for in our lives, we pray that you teach us. Grant that we would be able to discern your will, to learn it, and then to be filled with it so that our lives would indeed bear much fruit in every good work. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Colossians 1 and verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Those from the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone, With us here listening uh, today, we're in uh, Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He had heard of their faith and their love for all the saints, and he was rejoicing in what God had done for them, particularly uh, their response to the hope laid up in heaven, which they heard. He's so thankful that their response was faith and love, uh, rather than continuing in unbelief. And so he teaches us, or he taught, we noticed last week, about Christian hope. Uh, what it produces when we come to grips with it in our lives. And when we get to verse nine here, we discovered the petitions that he prayed for the Colossians. So what's interesting, if you look at verse nine, he says, from the day we heard of it, we've been praying these things. In other words, Paul has regularly been praying for the Colossian believers. He heard of their faith. He heard of their response to the hope laid up for them in heaven. He heard of their love for all the saints. So he's saying, look, from the time that I heard that there's a church there that you guys are doing well, that you believe in Jesus and that you love all the saints. From that time, I've been praying for y'all. And he would just continue to pray for them likely day in and day out as he prayed for all the believers and churches he had planted or churches he had never been to. When he heard about how believers are doing, he praised and thanked God and prayed for them on their behalf and What we find and discover in verses 9 through 11 are really petitions that Paul prayed for the Colossians. And I want to highlight this as a prayer. We ought to be seeking the things that Paul is praying for here and telling us that he prayed for believers. And we're going to look at that as we walk through this passage regarding knowing God's will. But this also should inform our prayer lives. These are prayers we can pray for each other, that each of us would come to a greater knowledge of God's will for our lives. Those are great prayer requests. So that indeed our lives would bear more fruit. So as we walk through this and look at this, I don't want us to lose track of the big picture here, that these are priorities in prayer. These are things that we should be praying about for each other. And so as we walk through the passage, I want us to notice that believers are to pray for and seek to know God's will for their lives. First thing I want us to notice in verse 9 is what is God's will for our lives? Second thing I want us to notice in verse 10 is what is the purpose of knowing God's will? And then the third thing in verse 11 is how can we do God's will? So what is God's will? What is the purpose of knowing it? And then how can we actually do it? Those three things. First, what is God's will for our lives? Verse nine, to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what Paul is praying for. That we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, first, what is God's will? In a lot of Christian circles, when people talk about God's will, it is akin to speaking about some sort of secret will, some will that is hidden from us, which we are trying to discover or try and get to know so that our lives can be better directed. That is oftentimes how believers speak of God's will. God's will is his decree and I'm trying to find out, though I'll never know his decree, I'm trying to somehow, in some almost unspeakable way, find out what his decree for my life is, so I can get in line with it, and then live in light of uh, his decree, which again, I trust most of us would realize that is largely or completely an impossible task. What I want us to see in this passage is that is not the will of God, which Paul is speaking about. In fact, if you look at verses 9 through 10, let me show you. Verse 9, asking that you may be filled with all the wisdom, with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So what's the will of God, which the Apostle Paul is wanting us to come to a fuller knowledge of? It's, it's a will which has to do with our living. It's a will, God's will, which has to do with are living in such a way as to walk worthy of the Lord and bear fruit. In other words, it's a will that has to do with his commands and precepts, not with some secret knowledge or with hidden things that pertain nothing to our godliness and our walk with the Lord. Now, some bookcases in houses are really a secret passageway to a secret room behind the bookcase. And on the bookcase, there's usually like a secret book or a hidden button that you got to find and if you find that book and you pull it or you find the button and you push it, a whole new world opens up where you're in this kind of hidden secret place. Maybe it's a safe place for kids to go or just a fun room to play in, right? Oftentimes that's how people look at God's will. There's a secret book. There's some secret knowledge. There's some special thing, which if I do, or even a, an added experience in the Christian life, which most Christians don't have access to. But if you can just find it, if you can just pray hard enough or read the right book or come across the right passage or have a certain experience, you will have pulled that book, which will open up a door into God's secret will. And once we know that oh, life is just so much better, because now I know exactly what he's laid out for me, and I can walk in that. Well, as we look at what God's will is for us in this life, as far as what he's decreed, let me just say from the outset that there is indeed a bookcase, but there's no button on it or book for us to pull. <laughs> the only way to gain access into that room behind the scenes is if you're a member of the Trinity. And that the secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, God has revealed everything that we need to know regarding how to live for his glory. He's revealed all that to us. But the secret things, the things behind the bookcase, there's no button to push. We don't have access to those things. And the only way we can actually find out what his decree is to a very limited extent is to just live. And by the end of the day, we can look back on our Sunday and say, yeah, now I know what God had decreed for me this day because I lived it and it's already happened. But regarding the future, I don't really have much of an idea about what God has decreed will take place in my life. So again, God's secret will is not what the Apostle Paul is praying that we would come to a greater knowledge of. He's not praying, hey, I hope every believer in Colossa and every believer in Pella would come to know a greater knowledge of God's secret will. What he's praying about is that we would come to know God's revealed will. Well, what is that? Well, there's actually six explicit places in the New Testament well, there's likely more, but here's some very obvious ones where God reveals his will to us. And so we can look to these saying, oh, this is what Paul wants me to grow in a knowledge of. The first one is, I'll just walk through the six passages. It's God's will that men and women be saved. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing, not willing, not desiring are some translations that any should perish. No one needs to have any doubt at all about what God's will is regarding salvation. Does God will that men and women be saved? Yes, we don't have to debate that. That We don't need to doubt that. Oh, I wonder if God would wills that this person be saved. I wonder if he desires that these people be saved. Of course he does. He's made that very clear. And that's why he's patient, desiring or willing that all should reach Repentance. The second thing regarding God's will that Paul wants us to grow in knowledge of is it's God's will that we submit to governing authorities, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, we might. Have, what's the doing good? The obeying, the human institutions. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So it's God's will that we would obey these governing authorities and that by our obedience to them, by our doing that good, we would actually put to silence a lot of speak against Christians that comes from foolish people. Third thing regarding God's will, it is God's will for us to suffer. 1 Peter 4, verses 17 and 19, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So it's God's will that while we do good in this world, we will suffer. We don't have to ask whether or not we will suffer for doing good or whether we will have to face fiery trials. We will. Believers will indeed be those who face fiery trials. And this is a hard one for a lot of us as believers to swallow. And it's often the case that when suffering comes into our lives, we start to think we're outside God's will. We start to think, whoa, I'm I'm, I'm stepping off course here. God must have decreed this for my life and I'm over here. Like, right, I took the wrong fork in the road. And thus I need to get back on the right road and then I will experience nothing but blessing and perfect bliss and a pain-free life. But indeed, what Peter tells the believers, what the Holy Spirit tells us, is that there will be fiery trials that come into our lives and God's concerned with how we live in them. Believers will suffer. It is part of our life. And that means we're actually in God's will, not outside of it. The fourth thing regarding God's will is it's God's will for us to be filled with the spirit. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's God's will? Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what God's will for our lives is. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it means a lot. Here in Ephesians, hey, sing right from the heart. Give thanks always in every circumstance to God, in every circumstance to him. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Five, it's God's will for us to be sanctified. First Thessalonians four, verses one through three. We ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So it's the will of God that we be sanctified, that our lives please God, that we grow in holiness more and more, and that we receive instruction on how to grow in holiness. That's God's will. And finally, it's God's will that we will rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So regarding the things we just looked at, we don't have to doubt or question what God's will is for us. It's his will that we be sanctified. It's his will that we become more and more holy. It's his will that his people be saved and come to repentance. It's God's will that we suffer. It's God's will that we submit ourselves to human authorities. It's God's will that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's praying that we would be filled with this. And I want to just pause on this word filled. He doesn't say, I want you to have a general acquaintance with it. He's not saying, Lord, I'm praying for all of you Colossians that you would just come to know sort of the tip of the iceberg and maybe get just a little bit of knowledge of his will. He's praying that they would be filled with it. Filled. Now that's the language of not just knowing, but being completely dominated by the will of God consumed by it dominated by it it's the controlling factor of our entire lives it fills us up the knowledge of God's will knowing what God wants me to be doing in this life for his glory is to be every believer's consuming passion we see this in Jesus very clearly don't we one commentator pointed that out I thought it was so helpful (laughs) What did Jesus come to do? What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, not my will be done, but yours. We see this clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, to do his Father's will was his food, food that just fed his soul. Beloved, that is to be the dominating factor in our lives as well. Not our wills, not our way, not Lord, I want to live my life in this way because I want all the happiness I can now like the world does. But Lord, your will, The knowledge of it, knowing what it is you've called me to, I want that to be the dominating factor. That is the cry of every believer. And that's what Paul's praying for us. That's what we're to be praying for each other. That's what it is we are to be seeking then knowledge of God's will, knowledge of His claim upon our lives. And I want us to notice as well, verse 9 notice knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Now, all those words, we could tease out each of those words a little bit, but I'm I want to come at it a different direction. They all engage the mind. They all refer to the mind. Now, wisdom's much deeper. It goes down to the heart and to our living. But knowledge, wisdom, understanding, you know, there are forms of Christianity which live purely in the emotional realm. It's a big thing, a lot here in America. Maybe it's all over the world. (laughs) I'm just, uh, it likely is. I just know how it operates in America uh, just a little bit where Sunday gatherings are deemed successful if people felt something in a worship service or in a song, where it's even believed that the Holy Spirit's truest and most genuine work takes place when we feel a certain way. And I want to highlight that indeed we are emotional beings. Anyone who says we're not emotional beings and that to be a believer means we're just stoic people who never feel anything, is ridiculous. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and not feel anything, (laughs) We can't learn of the great truths found in the gospel that God would send his son to die in our place and just sit there emotionless. Oh, no big deal. We're indifferent to it. Oh, this is incredible. Buffett. What I want us to see is that if we want lives which glorify God and bear fruit in every work, this isn't a mindless endeavor. This is something which involves our thinking. It involves learning. It involves discerning. It involves growing in the knowledge of God's will, what it is that he desires for us and commands us as far as how we're to live our lives, the things we just looked at. It's not a mindless or a brainless activity. In fact, it involves our minds very much. Romans twelve two: do not be conformed to this world. How? How can I live in this world differently? How can I live a life which glorifies God rather than a life which is just conformed to this world? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It involves our thinking. And when Paul is praying this, hey, I want you to come to a knowledge of God's will. I want you to be filled with it. It means that we're having to fill our minds with things and we're having to learn things and grow in our understanding of things. Charles Spurgeon, if you read this epistle through, speaking of Colossians, you will observe that Paul frequently alludes to knowledge and wisdom. He would not have them ignorant He knew that spiritual ignorance is the constant source of error, instability, and sorrow. And therefore he desired that they might be soundly taught in the things of God. I want to hit one more thing here, or two more things, but it's maybe more from a pastoral angle. I don't know how we can pray this for each other and seek it for ourselves if we aren't in the word of God at all. If we ask believers all over the world what they believe about the Bible, I'm guessing everyone we encounter would say, oh, it's God's word, right? If we asked other believers, including ourselves with a microphone and went around interviewing people and asked folks, hey, how important is God's word to them? We'd probably say very important, right? But then if we did one more follow-up question went a step further, yep, it's God's word. God's word is very important. How much time do you spend ingesting in it? How much time do you spend taking it in and actually learning about what God's will is for your life based on the things he's told us, I'm guessing a lot of us might end up saying, well, not as much as I'd like. And then if one last question was asked, well, how much time do you spend ingesting TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, the latest news on Yahoo or Fox or CNN or Wall Street Journal, whatever the case may be? There might be another response which goes along the lines of, oh, I I I read this today. I read that today. I've got plenty of time for that, or I make time for that. And all I'm trying to highlight is this. You know, by now, I don't have some legalistic formula. We have to be in devotions 10 minutes a day and Bible reading, et cetera. But let me just throw this out there. How do we come to a knowledge of God's will as God's people? What's the only way we can know what God has revealed to us about his will for our lives? It's in the Bible. So if we're to be those praying That we be filled with the knowledge of His will for ourselves and praying that for other people. What is it we need to be doing at least? Spending time in the Word, right? And what does it mean if we have lots of time as believers to be doing a ton of other things on social media? It means we have plenty of time available to spend in God's Word. It might not be our priority. We might not think being in God's Word is important enough to replace that, but it does mean we have plenty of time if we can engage in things which you could argue are largely maybe more of a waste of time. I didn't say they are a waste of time. I said maybe. But think about it, beloved. If we're not in God's Word, will our lives be filled with chaos and confusion, a lot of question marks, having no idea what it is He wants us to do? It will. So if we want to be filled with the knowledge of His will, we've got to be in his word. And one more thing, the source of this knowledge and wisdom of God's will is the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Some people say it, the, the word spiritual has to do with that which comes from the Holy Spirit. No one's life will ever be dominated by and consumed with the will of God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not possible. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes a genuine work of the Holy Spirit to give us a knowledge of God's will, not just at conversion, but for the rest of our lives. These are things which involve the Holy Spirit teaching us. So we are to pray for and seek to know God's will. We looked at what God's will for our lives is And now I want to look secondly at what is the purpose of knowing God's will. So we have this information, we're studying God's will, we're reading the Bible, we discover what he wants for us and what it is we're supposed to be doing. What do we do with that? What's the purpose? Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So in Christianity, knowledge is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. Our God is not interested in packing our heads full of information and doctrine and teaching just to let it sit there in our heads. Our God is not interested in packing our heads full of information just so we can pass it along to others without ever having it sort through our hearts and souls. And he's not interested in packing our heads full of information in order that we can impress others with the size of our brains. Our God's interested in people whose minds are being renewed and filled with the knowledge of his will, who then diligently live it out. Catch verse 10, the beginning, so as to purpose clause. He's praying that we would come to a knowledge of God's will to be filled with it so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, if we don't know God's will, we'll not be able to walk well. We need to learn what God's will is. It's something all of us have to grow in. If you came to faith as an adult, this change this information came to you abruptly, right? If you came as a child, it was very gradual. But I trust we can all see that we didn't necessarily know we were supposed to do something until we learned of it. And when we came to learn, oh, this is what God wants for my life, then is the process and now I have to do it. And so we need to learn. But once we learn, then God wants us to put it into practice so we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, the, the language worthy is interesting. It has to do with having worth that matches actual value. The word actually comes from the language of scales and balances. So think of value and worth on one side or being on one side and think of acting in accordance with it or doing on the other side. And what we're being called to when we're told so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is we're called to live as we are. We're called to do as we are. In other words, our doing is supposed to be in line with our being. Our being has been established in the gospel. We are God's blood-bought children. And now we are supposed to live in light of that and to live in proportion to that. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, similar language is used. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. In Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live what you are. There's a a movie, Saving Private Ryan, where this is flushed out. Uh, It's very powerful, and I want to use it to highlight something. There's also a weakness in in how it's put. Eight men are sent out to find the last of uh, four brothers who is alive and bring him home. So four brothers went out, I think three died, one still alive, and the sole survivor doctrine of the U.S. Army, I think it was established in 1942, just right it this past week, and uh, uh, said that if you were the only son left to your family, uh, then uh, because others of your siblings have been killed in combat, you're now exempt from combat. And so eight men were sent out to get this James Ryan, this private. While they were going out, six out of those eight men died. So now we've got six lives for the sake of one, just to get him back so his family doesn't have to mourn the loss of four sons, they can just mourn the loss of three, and have a son to help them out. Now, these eight men were led by a Captain John Miller. They found the guy, and... John Miller was successful in his campaign to get the guy back. But as John Miller, this captain, is dying, he grabbed James Ryan, this private that they went out to save, and he said to him, James, earn this. Earn it. And then from that, it goes to a scene 50 years later where this James Ryan, this private who had been saved, is kneeling by the grave of Captain John Miller, and he says this. Every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And then he turns to his wife who walks up and says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And she says, you are. And the movie portrays a haunting reality. Can anyone live up to the sacrifices others make for them? Can one man live such an honorable life that it measures up to the lives of six men who sacrificed their own lives so the one man could live? And the conclusion I think we'd all come to is that no one's goodness can be so exceedingly great that it measured up to and exceeds the sacrifices of six men who can't live anymore because they died in order to save that one person. Furthermore, what a horrible way to have to live trying to gain worth and value. I've got to earn this. This whole life dominated. I have to earn this now. Boy, that's some pressure to be under for your whole life. Well, in the gospel, there's something incredible that takes place. And I want to highlight that so we get a good understanding of what it means to walk worthy in the Lord. What what does it mean to, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord? Does it mean I have to earn what he's given me? Does Jesus from the cross look down at me when he's dying in my place and say, Earn this earn it, make good on it, prove that you're valuable. Is that what Jesus does? From the cross, Jesus looks down and says, it's finished. I've earned it. From the cross, Jesus looks down and says, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they haven't earned a thing. These are sinners I'm here to save. These are sinners I'm here to die for and to deliver from your wrath. And we are to live our lives then trying to establish and gain our worth and try and earn our value and prove that we're valuable. But we are so to live our lives in accordance with the worth we already have in Christ. God doesn't say to us, prove to me that I didn't make a mistake on saving you. Live your lives in such a way as to make my sacrifice of value. God doesn't say to us, the jury's out. Your value and worth are bound up in how you live your life. Not at all. God proclaims to us this. I've already made you a child of mine. I've already justified you and declared you righteous in my son. I've already secured your entrance into my heaven. Now live out of that worth. Live, worthy of, live in a manner that's worthy of that in accordance with it. To live in a manner worthy of the Lord is this. Live like you're already God's child. Don't live like you're trying to become God's child. Live like your sins are already forgiven. Don't live like you hope they will be one day. Live like you already have eternal life in Christ. Don't live like you're trying to earn it. Live like you have already been declared righteous and good with the goodness of Christ earned. Don't try to live in such a way as to accumulate a righteousness that will stand before God. Live like you're valuable to God. He sent his only son to die on the cross for you. Don't live like the value of your life to God is bound up in your good works. I want to just ask us, What does the manner of living worthy before the Lord look like in our lives? How does this bear itself out? How many of us are living our lives in order to prove to God that we're worthy to be saved? How many of us on a daily basis, I'm asking myself this too, are going out there as if Jesus Christ looked down from the cross and said, all right, I did my part. Now you go out and you earn it. How many of us are going out in life Living in a manner worthy of the Lord, saying, Lord, you have already established my worth. This is just incredible. Well, I'm a blood-bought child of yours. I belong to you. I'm a child of the king. And now I'm going to go out and just serve you. You've already established my worth. Thank you for taking that burden from off of me. And now I can just go out and live a life that's worthy of you. Well, but how is it with us? It's a subtle difference, isn't it? It's a difference which almost sounds like it doesn't have a distinction, but there's a distinction in there. And it's a big difference as far as our joy is concerned and as far as sustaining our obedience. It's a big difference in our hearts. How is this with you? Well, the phrase fully pleasing to him, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. We're supposed to live in a way that's uh, walking worthy of our Lord fully pleasing to Him, which again is very interesting language. This means that we can actually be pleasing to the Lord. Wow. Now, I I know it's easy for us to slip into the notion of God, which says that He's very austere. He's perfect and asks us to be perfect. And He sits in heaven and He just counts up our sins and He knows every one of our failures. And when we slip up, He's almost ready to condemn us, but He just stops a bit short, but He's just right there on the precipice ready to do it. And anytime the sledgehammer is going to fall, And he doesn't want us to think that we're pleasing to him. He wants us to think that he's actually very disappointed with us every minute of every day. Because he sees our thoughts, he sees our heart motives, he sees our deeds, and he always thinks they could be better. Wow, look at all, all I've done for you and my son. That's all you got? That's all you can do? That's your tepid response? None of this is good enough. And what a passage like this tells us and a phrase like this tells us is that it is possible. And you can flip over to 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul says they're, they're pleasing the Lord by the way they want. And we come to a view of God which is just radically different that we can live in a way which is pleasing to Him. Now imagine that, beloved. That does not mean we're sinless. That does not mean we arrive at the point where, oh yeah, I'm not sinning anymore. I never fail. Uh-uh. This is a father who is so gracious, so kind, Think of it as a parent. What, is, what just sets our parents' heart on fire? When you see a two-year-old trying to do something, you ask them to do. Now, can they make a five-course breakfast? If we ask our four-year-old to, hey, I want French toast and fresh-squeezed orange juice from the oranges in the fridge, and I want some really good gourmet coffee with a tad bit of cream, and I want all this stuff, can that four-year-old pull it off? Probably not. But what is really encouraging to a parent to watch them try? They actually want to do this. Look at this. They're making efforts. That is so pleasing to a parent, isn't it? Now imagine we're sinful parents. Imagine how pleased a perfect heavenly father is when he sees his children, whom he's saved, make efforts to put the knowledge of his will into practice so that our lives bear fruit. Imagine how pleasing it is to our father in heaven when he sees his children striving to obey him, striving to make efforts. And we never arrive at the point where we're like 50 and only really mature, right? We're always children before God. We always pray our father, not my coworker or my comrade. No, it's always my father. Why? We're always children. Our beloved God is pleased with this. And I, I can't impress this upon you enough as I've been impressed upon it too. If our view of God is off, then bearing fruit, learning his will, and seeking to do it is going to be a drudgery. It's not going to be something we delight to do. What does a child like to do? Please their parents? What is so great about being a child of God? We get to please God by how we walk and how we live. That's just incredible. He's pleased with it, beloved, when we're striving to do those things. I hope none of us are discouraged by our striving to serve him. And then finally, he mentions bearing fruit in every good work. This is the will of God that we be a fruitful people, that we bear fruit. So we learn his will, what he asks us to do, that we might bear fruit in every good work. God's called us to be faithful in every good work. He's not just concerned about the big works, even the small ones, right? There's works that are on a public stage. There's works where thousands of people come to faith. If you're Billy Graham, you've seen some pretty big works, right? But how about the small works in home, caring for kids, changing diapers, making meals? Is that, is that bearing fruit? Is that a good work? Absolutely, that's a good work. That's loving others. God wants us to bear fruit in every good work, all of them. He wants us to learn his will so that whether the work is big or whether it's super tiny and nobody on earth notices it, we're bearing fruit in them. Increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're to be seeking continued growth in the knowledge of God, growing in our knowledge of him. Those are the things that we are called to do with God's will. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. What a privilege we have as his children. And then finally, believers are to pray for and seek to know God's will for their lives. What is God's will? What is the purpose of knowing God's will? And then third, how can we do God's will? Verse 11, how can we pull this off? This is a lot to put God's will in, in, into practice because God's asked a lot of us. If you don't believe me, just read all the commands in the New Testament. <laughs> it's a lot, right? How can we do it? Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, what is God after that we would have endurance and patience in our serving him with joy. That's, that's what he's after. We'll get to the beginning of the verse in just a moment. God wants us to have endurance in our doing of his will. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every word. He wants us, the Christian life isn't a sprint. He didn't save us so we could give him a lot, three or four months of good front work and then we're just off the, off the wagon, said, just thrown in the towel. He wants us to do this with endurance, and with patience, right? So long-term, with joy. He's not after believers who are just slogging their way through it miserable. God, you've asked me to do a lot. I hate it. I'm really miserable in it, and I wish you would just leave me alone. He wants us to be doing all this fruit bearing and walking in a manner worthy to him with joy endurance patience with smiles in our hearts that's how God wants us to be doing this and how will we pull it off being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might it won't be in our own strength for sure that's what this passage makes clear the only way we can pull this off is if we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might now the word according to is interesting the preposition It means, in this context, in proportion to or according to the measure of. So God wants us to be strengthened with all power in proportion to the measure of his glorious might. Well, how glorious is God's might? 185,000 of Sennacherib's army destroyed. He parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk across on dry ground and then drown Pharaoh's army. He created the entire universe. You know how he did that? He talked. He spoke. I don't know about the power of your words, but a lot of times when I speak at home, there ain't nobody listening. There There ain't nothing happening, right? We can't create things with our words. God speaks, and the universe comes into existence, beloved. That's power. That's tremendous power. And how many armies does it take to raise somebody from the dead? Who's ever pulled it off? How many nuclear scientists or, or any kind of scientists or biologists or doctors would you have to assemble together to get somebody to actually raise somebody from the dead? Never happened. No human mind has ever pulled it off. God raised his son Jesus from the dead. Beloved, the power that we can be strengthened with and that Paul prays we be strengthened with is in accordance with God's glorious might. That is tremendous. I think it was Lloyd-Jones, somebody mentioned that like if only we as believers understood all the power available to us, Ephesians 1, that we would know that power and that we would be strengthened with that power. All we would make all the difference in our Christian lives. Some of us think, if you're like me, and I hope you're not. Some of us think that the power available to us is real, but it's small. And what this passage teaches us is that the power available to us by God, to strengthen us to do his will, not just to know it, be filled with it, but to do it is actually immense. It's real, and it's immense, and it's something we can be strengthened with. Don't estimate the power which is at work in each believer, including yourself and myself. Let's pray. Again.